From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Zika virus. It's a growing public health concern as the number of cases of Zika infection increase in South America. Uh, Zika is especially dangerous to pregnant women because of its link to fairly profound birth defects. We'll have an update on the Zika threat in this country and the work to find a vaccine. Also on the program, do sleep tracking devices really work? And which ones are better, the wearable units or the apps? And undescended testicle and growing boys can be a worrisome but often correctable problem. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, these days, you know, it's hard not to turn around without hearing news about a virus that until recently was pretty much unheard of in the U.S. until just a few months ago. It's called the Zika virus, and it's a mosquito-borne pathogen that can cause a variety of signs and symptoms. Perhaps most dramatic and concerning among them are the irreversible birth defects in babies born to infected mothers. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, just over 350 cases of Zika infection have been recorded so far in the United States. And it's important to note, all of those cases have been related to travel outside of the country. To date, no Zika infections have occurred within the U.S. Despite that, the CDC earlier this year raised its Zika response effort to a level one activation. That's the highest response level at that agency. Well, here to bring us up to date on the Zika virus threat is Dr. Patish Tosh. Dr. Tosh is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. Good to have you. Uh, thank you so much. So my first question is, where do these uh, new pathogens come from? I mean, we've got Ebola and we've got H1N1 and we've got Zika. Where, where all of a sudden do they, they come out of where? Yeah, so a lot of this comes out of what we call the zoonotic reservoir. And that, uh, you know, the number of human infections that have been infecting humans, well, we know most of those. Uh, except uh, we don't know all of the infections that infect every organism. Mm. Um, and so often these are coming in from some other animal reservoir and then eventually uh, acquires mutations uh, or through enough exposure becomes more and more humanized. And then we start to see uh, uh, things infecting humans. You know, Some of these, like Zika virus, uh, a lot of the infections are subclinical, meaning that people don't have symptoms. And so it's quite possible that until we discovered the association with birth defects, that there was silent infection going on for decades in certain really? parts of the world. And you know, there's some serologic evidence to suggest that, that certain parts of the world, this has actually been going on much longer than, than we had uh, initially thought. Hmm. So where are the Zika mosquitoes at this point? We know they're in Central America or South America. Where are they? So the Zika mosquitoes, uh, I will take that to mean one of two things. One is the mosquito itself, and then also where are the mosquitoes that uh, have Zika virus right now. And so the latter question is right now we're seeing Zika virus ongoing transmission, especially in South America, uh, into uh, Central America and uh, the Caribbean. Um, that being said, we also have uh, the, the mosquitoes, so Aedes aegypti, Aedes albopictus, in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's been a long time, especially in the southern parts of the United States. And so uh, this, you know, alert level one 
you know, we have the mosquito. We've had people come here from aware, from elsewhere with, with the infection. And, you know, if, if we, if those people were to get, say, bitten by those mosquitoes and then we have cycles of transmission, we very well could have locally acquired Zika virus. So, uh, so now wait a minute. The, the uh, person would travel somewhere, pick up the Zika virus from a, a mosquito down in South America or wherever, come back to the United States, get the disease, and then a mosquito here would bite the person, and then th- all the mosquitoes would have it, or the mosquitoes would. You, how do the mosquitoes pass it on to each other? You know, they don't know do they necessarily have? pass it on to each other. They can pass it to another person, bite uh, another person, give it to them, and then, uh, depending if you have enough people getting infected and enough mosquito bites, you can create populations of ongoing transmission. And the idea, of course, is to stop that cycle of transmission. Alternatively, because of migration of or the you know, commerce and things like that uh, and garbage barges and what have you traveling internationally, you know, it doesn't necessarily take a person traveling. You can accidentally you know, get these mosquitoes that have uh, Zika moving farther north. Well, and from past uh, interview that we've done, it's not only mosquitoes, but you can transmit Zika sexually. Right, and we do need to. Uh, I mean, the vast majority of Zika infections is through the mosquito, uh, but we have seen that there are cases of, of Zika virus that's been acquired sexually, and uh, for most people, uh, they acquire the infection, uh, and within two weeks, it's out of their blood. We're finding that it's about six hundred thousand times higher concentration in semen, and can last. For months. No, really. And right. And so the CDC recommendations are that if a woman has uh, come down with Zika virus infection, that she wait uh, two months or eight weeks, two months uh, before you know, attempting to get pregnant. Uh, but if a man gets infected, he should wait six months because the virus could stay in the semen for a long time. And we looked at about two months, I think, is the longest right now. So they just multiply that number by three. How does an adult know that they have Zika? I mean, if you don't have the birth defects from a baby that's born, how do you know if you have it? So 80% of people who get infected with Zika, they feel nothing. Wow. There's no symptoms at all. And that's why it's a problem. And so the recommendations aren't just if somebody has known infection. If they have traveled to a Zika virus endemic area and they come back, even if they feel fine, they should wait eight weeks uh, until uh, trying to have a baby. All right. So tell us about the precautions that people in the United States ought to be taking now. There's no, should be no restriction or is no restriction with with regard to travel within the U.S., correct? Right. Okay. If you're going where, what should you do? So the recommendation is that women who are currently pregnant not travel to Zika virus endemic areas. And, and those areas are once again? So mostly South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Okay. Uh, but if they can't avoid it, uh, they should be you know, very cautious in terms of wearing uh, you know, full-length clothing, uh, using uh, uh, insect repellent with plenty of DEET, about 25%, uh, on exposed skin, putting on several times a day to try to prevent mosquito bites, sleeping under a bed net if, if, if uh, they're in a, a Zika virus endemic area. So that's the main the, the main warning. There is women of childbearing age who go to the Caribbean, Central America, South America ought to be really careful or not go there. If, if mostly it's a the, the, that that recommendation is of pregnant women themselves, uh, but if it's a, somebody of childbearing age that they wait 
eight weeks after returning before trying to get pregnant. Oh, so if you're already pregnant, then the, the baby could still potentially have a birth defect if you get the Zika virus while you're pregnant? Exactly. Ah, okay. And what about Zika in the United States this summer? So, yeah, there's a lot of predictions about what's going to happen, and it depends on how, how things move in terms of the mosquitoes and whether we have endemic infections. It's tough to say. You'll have to come back and talk to us about it. I will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Very good. But that's uh, more information than we had before. Dr. Patish Tosh, Infectious Disease Specialist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk with a leading vaccine researcher about the work that's underway to develop a vaccine to prevent Zika virus infection. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio. On the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we've just heard about the Zika virus, what it is, how it's spreading, and why it's potentially a threat to public health. Now we're going to talk about what's being done to combat the Zika virus, including work on a vaccine to actually prevent it. Here to talk about the, that aspect of the fight against Zika is Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland is an internal medicine specialist, and he heads the vaccine research group at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Thank you. Good to be here. Hey, it's nice to have you, and, and especially to talk about this problem, because the Zika virus seems to be causing some concern, even alarm among the experts. For example, we don't know how to treat it. We don't know how to prevent it from spreading. We know that it can be transmitted sexually. So what we want to talk to you about is how are we? Go- how about preventing it? Are we, are we close to possibly being able to do that? In a word, no. <laughs> okay, what, that's the end of well, our interview. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, uh, of course, it's mosquito-borne illness. It's a sex-transmitted uh, illness. It's uh, uh, blood-borne in transfusions. So there's a number of ways to contract the Zika virus. And I think what we first have to come to grips with is how little we know about the virus. And we're learning a lot week by week. We don't have any other model of a mosquito-borne illness causing birth defects. So there's a lot of people who would benefit from prevention of this infection. The tactic that my group is taking, and we're collaborating with a group in Brazil, which is the epicenter of this outbreak, and another group in India, is to build a vaccine that would protect us against the virus. What is the timeline, the usual timeline? So this isn't the first vaccine that you've worked on. Right. So what is the timeline usually? Something is identified, oh my goodness, we need a vaccine, the research begins. How does that usually pan out? Shockingly slow to most people. <laughs> not like a minds. movie. Not like usually the, by the end of the movie, it's I, all done. If I could do it, Tracy, I would. <laughs> it will probably take on the order of six to ten years to have a licensed vaccine. Well, for example, in HIV, we don't have a vaccine against AIDS yet. We and don't. that's been around for how long? And yeah. people are still working on it. Yeah, that, right? now that's a little different situation in that that's a very hyper mutable virus. And at least with Zika, we're dealing with two lineages, an African lineage and an Asian lineage. The Asian lineage is what's causing most of the problems now, and a fairly stable virus. So at least what we understand about the virus right now is it shouldn't be difficult to isolate the pieces of the virus that stimulate immunity. It is all the regulatory testing and hurdles that you have to go through that will take that long. It will cost us somewhere between half a billion to a billion U.S. dollars to bring a vaccine to market. So you said you're working with, uh, in Brazil, they are also working on this. One of the things that I think might be 
interesting is the federal government. You know, like you said, the testing that has to be done. Is that a little bit smoother track down in Brazil or is it here? I I don't know that I would call it smoother. (laughs) I I think, you know, a, a good thing is that when a vaccine comes on the market in the U.S., this thing has been tested extensively. We know its safety. We know its efficacy. It is a deliberate, iterative process. It's true that in other countries it might not be as stringent. That may or may not translate to faster. Now, when you said uh, the HIV virus is hypermutable, I think you said, does that mean that it changes from time to time? It changes constantly. Where if is this Zika virus you don't think is going to change over time? At least it's more stable. So okay. it's not in the class of viruses like um, HIV or hepatitis C, for which we don't have vaccines. It's in the class of viruses that change their sequence or add mutations much more slowly. And so uh, that gives us hope in terms of building a vaccine. And the real concern here uh, is the the birth defects that it can cause, right? I think there are two primary concerns. One is it can cause Guillain-Barre and ascending paralysis. Um, That's one complication. But that's reversible and transient, right? But that's for the most part reversible with proper treatment in, you know, good quality medical environments. Okay. But you're right from a public health point of view. The thing that's frightening are these congenital malformations. And, you know, the initial thought was that it was predominantly one, microencephaly. So, you know, small heads compromise of the brain. But it appears there, there, it's much more extensive than that. Joint fusions. Really? Um, blindness, uh, probable long-term learning disabilities. Uh, and we don't even understand the full extent of it yet. So it's a, it's a frightening thing if you're a pregnant woman to think a mosquito bite could change the life of my yet-to-be-born child. The question, you know, how close are we to having the vaccine, that that could be how close are you to figuring out here's the vaccine, how close are you to testing the vaccine, how yeah. close are you to offering the vaccine, yeah. where are we at on that timeline? So uh, we've looked pretty extensively at our own milestones and timelines. We think that we'll be able to identify the key components that stimulate immunity within a year. And from that, begin to package those proteins with either chemicals that stimulate the immune system or nanoparticles, and then begins the the testing. Mm. You have to do animal testing. We'll have to do it in two different species of animals. And then we'll have to hand it off probably to the pharmaceutical industry who has the resources to do the testing in humans. But you've sort of been through this process multiple times we before. That, that, that helps, doesn't yeah, it? It does, At least indeed. to some extent. Yeah, you know, as they say, it's not our first rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> so what? tell me some of the vaccines that you've worked on. So uh, we have developed a peptide-based vaccine against measles. We've done it against smallpox. And we're working right now on developing one against H5N1 influenza, the so-called bird flu. What about malaria? Malaria is a much, much tougher um, nut to crack because here you have a complex organism. You have a whole parasite that goes through different stages, a blood stage, a liver stage, etc. And there is a malaria vaccine that's about 30 or so percent effective that they're testing, but mm. we've not worked in that area. And what about Ebola? Same thing with Ebola. We've not worked in that area. And the primary reason is that 
you face many, many more regulatory hurdles. We would not bring Ebola virus onto the Mayo campus, Mm -hmm. for example, where we could do it, whereas we can work with Zika. It's at a biosafety level that is easy for us to work on. The only issue is that we can't allow women of childbearing age, for example, uh, to work with it. Let's say you got really lucky. And you and you got the vaccine next week. Can you figure out how to make it? <laughs> Let's you got say it approved. you're super talented. <laughs> you got it next week. So who would you give it to first? That's a that's a great question. And uh, assuming that we knew it was safe, right, and ready to be marketed, I think the uh, people that you have the most concern about are women of childbearing age, and then men. around the world, or would you start in Brazil? Uh, well, Brazil, yeah, or? you'd you'd want to start where you're seeing the outbreaks and where we know the two species of mosquitoes that carry this virus live. So we have seen this thing jump from Africa, move westward through the Pacific into South America. And this same mosquito is well represented all along the southern rim of the United States. And I'm suspicious that's why almost $2 billion got put into research up the northeast corridor Mm -hmm. of the U.S. So um, Zika is going to almost certainly be in the U.S. Uh, It's already in Puerto Rico, American Samoa, U.S. Virgin Islands. No reason, given that we have the mosquito carrier here in the U.S., that we wouldn't see it. And so it'll be a broadening. You get the vaccine to the people at most immediate need, and then you broaden from there. Would we ever be able to get rid of mosquitoes? Do mosquitoes ever it do any good? Yeah, well, they are a food source. For bats. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, like you, I want to ask the Lord, why ticks and why mosquitoes <laughs> when I get there? And why is the avocado pit so big? But, <laughs> but uh, I don't think we're ever going to be rid of mosquitoes. Now, I will tell you about a fascinating experiment that's going to be done in the U.S., down in Florida. A company in Great Britain has manufactured a sterile male mosquito that will, I shouldn't say sterile, it's a, it's a mutant male mosquito that will mate with the female mosquito and the progeny will not be able to mature, will not be able to carry the virus. So I'm not kidding. And they, <laughs> Frankenstein they mosquitoes. Rele- they release them, they mate with the females, the males die within two days, the and genetically this, modified male mosquitoes. And they're going to do this in Florida they're this gonna year? They're going to do it in Florida. Wow. Hey, Dr. Greg Poland, thanks so much for being with us and bringing us up to date on your work on the Zika virus. Dr. Greg Poland is an internal medicine specialist, and he's head of the Vaccine Research Group at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Poland, thanks so much. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, have you ever thought about getting a sleep tracker to help monitor how well you're sleeping? We'll have the results of a new study that reviewed sleep trackers to determine which ones are best for helping you get on track for a good night's rest. And undescended testicle, or UDT. It's a condition in growing boys that can cause worry and concern. We'll talk with an expert about how UDT is treated. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. More people are dying from accidental prescription opioids than 
from heroin and cocaine combined. Mayo Clinic's Dr. Michael Hooten is talking about narcotic pain relievers such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, and methadone. These pain relievers may help in the short term. However, Mayo researchers found one in four patients prescribed an opioid painkiller for the first time progressed to chronic use. They also found that people with histories of tobacco use and substance abuse were more likely to use opioid painkillers long term. Dr. Hooten says there are certain clinical characteristics that put some people at risk. Psychiatric comorbid problems, including depression, anxiety, substance use, are independent predictors of opioid misuse and even accidental opioid deaths. Dr. Hooten says finding alternative methods to managing pain, including non-opioid analgesics or other non-medication approaches, may help reduce the risk of opioid addiction. And in other news, with spring, often comes spring cleaning. You may have a chance to clean your house inside and out, but what about your pantry? How often do you clean it? If you're trying to lose weight or adopt a healthy lifestyle, consider digging in. Amanda Leisenheimer is a registered dietitian with Mayo Clinic Health System. She says you might have a New Year's resolution to start eating better, but still have old temptations waiting for you on the shelf. So get rid of them. Throw away old unhealthy foods and replace them with new healthy options such as low-sodium pretzels, hummus, light popcorn, baked chips, canned salmon or tuna, and whole wheat crackers. Also, check out your spices. They can lose their flavor. Consider growing some yourself in a small box near a window. These are some healthy tips for a healthier spring pantry. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever wondered if you're getting enough sleep? <laughs> we all do, don't we? <laughs> I suppose. If you're like most Americans, the answer is probably yes. But just how do you know whether or not the sleep you're getting is adequate? Well, short of undergoing a sleep study, which can involve an overnight stay at a clinic, you might consider getting a sleep tracking device. There are lots of them on the markets, from the kind you wear around your wrist to the kind that you put under a mattress pad or bedside wireless devices. And they can measure everything from your heart rate, breathing, body movement, and even perspiration while you're sleeping. Some even claim to monitor how much time you spend dreaming. (laughs) Well, here to help us sort through the various types of sleep monitors and offer some tips on choosing one that's best for you is Dr. Banu Kola. Dr. Kola is a psychiatrist and sleep medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, and he's with his, his wife, his spouse, who actually knows how much he sleeps. Dr. Meghna Mansukhani, and they've just completed a review of sleep trackers to be published in a medical journal. Welcome to the program to you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right, sleep trackers. Didn't even know there was such a thing. So well, what are these devices? Initially, people were using what were called fitness trackers. So these are things like Fitbit, uh, Jawbone, Fancy bracelet that they wear to bed. Exactly. It's a bracelet. You wear it around your wrist. It measures the activity level, so it could tell you the number of steps you took, how far you ran. And uh, over time, these device manufacturers recognize that there is this big market also to monitor sleep. So they made some tweaks and came up with some algorithms wherein they said that we can now measure how much sleep you're getting and also maybe tell you what the quality of the sleep is. Well, Dr. Mansukhani, you would think all that you have to know is, are you asleep or not? I mean, it's interesting to me, and my husband had one of these, that throughout the night you can see what is the quality of your sleep. So how is that ever measured? So we don't know that is the short answer because the algorithms are proprietary. 
Uh, we actually tried contacting the device manufacturers and either didn't get a response or they said, you know, the algorithm was closed. So we don't exactly know how they do it, but what we do know is when they tell us you're asleep, that is more accurate than when they tell us that we're awake in the middle of the night. So the two of you thought, we need to study this. We did. <laughs> and so how many did you study? How many were all together? We actually looked for any studies uh, done in any age group um, that looked at these, and we found about 20 studies total. Half of them were on fitness trackers, and actually half of them were on sleep apps that are very popular nowadays. Well, you know, actually, what's the point? I mean, uh, what information does it really give you, and what do you do with the information you get? So the information that we got is that, in general, the fitness trackers were better than the apps, and it tells us um, when we're asleep, but not so much how how we're how much time we're awake. So the actual numbers in terms of total sleep time or how long it takes to fall asleep, how much deep sleep or light sleep you get, that's not accurate with telling those things at all. Um, <laughs> uh, but so, if I had that information, what would I do with it? So you can, uh, I think what we concluded was that you can tell overall patterns. You can tell what time someone went to bed and what time they woke up so you could, you know, take a step back and say, oh, okay, this patient has a circadian rhythm problem because they're, they're going to bed and wake up times are definitely, you know, out of keeping with what most of us would do. Well, and you can kind of do your own testing too. Like I said, my husband had one and it would be f- interesting to look at the nights that he would go to bed later Maybe he did not sleep as well, so there was more movement. But you could look at it the next day, the printout, and it would say, oh, he was tossing and turning a lot more. If he went to bed earlier, he seemed to lay still longer, and so better sleep for the longer he slept. And I think this is all part of um, what's called the quantified self movement, where people want to know pretty much all their physiologic parameters, so what heart rate you generate when you're on a treadmill, um, what, how many steps you yeah. take, how many calories you've consumed, and how much sleep you get as part of that. And people get competitive about that, Tom. Yes. Did, were they competitive about their sleep? Were you finding that? You know, that part wasn't, you know, specified in the papers, but there are, there are some positives to doing that, at least in terms of fitness. But with sleep, you know, it could go either way. If you start over-monitoring your sleep, you might be too involved with it and, and just not get enough sleep. Now, that hasn't been demonstrated. We have to look and see if that's the case, but... Uh, it may not be all positive. So who ought to consider getting one of these devices, and, and what should they look for? Which one should they buy? <laughs> <laughs> so there have been no head-to-head comparisons for any of these devices, so we don't know if any device is actually any better than the uh, others that are out there. So some uh, big takeaways from our study were the apps generally don't tend to perform as well, so that's understandable. Because this- what do you do with your phone? You put your phone under your pillow. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's funny. Right. And there could be a bed partner, so somebody else who's moving around in bed, so it could pick up noise from there. Uh, It's not on your person, so there's this distance, Mm -hmm. so the signal gets degraded. When it comes to apps, that's the problem. When it comes to fitness trackers, too, uh, like we had mentioned earlier, it's not clear what exactly they're measuring and how they say you're asleep, how they say you're awake. All the studies have been able to compare them against PSG, that's the sleep study, and say that they are not that accurate. But why they are not accurate, we don't know. And in general, sleep 
times seem somewhat adequate in terms of what they generate, but there is a lot of noise. So at this point, somebody is concerned about their sleep. Still, the advice is see a provider rather than get one of these trackers and try to measure your own sleep. So it, the bottom line is they're, number one, not that good, and number two, we don't really know what the information means. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, At least in terms of sleep quality and light sleep, deep sleep, that sort of a thing. Yeah, even as we were saying in the intro, some of them saying how much time you're dreaming. Yes. You know, I, the only way that you measure that, isn't it, through brain waves yeah. or your eyeballs, isn't that right? <laughs> yes. And Karen? waking people up from, they say, you know, light sleep so that you get an optimal night of sleep. It's, it's, I don't know how they do that. So, Did your husband change his behavior in any way or when he goes to bed because of the information he got? Yeah, I think he did because it was interesting to, to note what a difference it made tossing and turning when he went to bed later at night. And so that, I think it did make a difference for him. And I suppose if it's bothering you, if you're, you know, kind of upset about it or freaking out or focusing too much, too on, much it. on it. It's not good. Mm-hmm. But for his purposes, it was interesting because he went, wow, there really is a benefit to I'm, I'm sleeping more soundly when I go to bed earlier. You gave him a curfew. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about sleep trackers, what they do and don't do with Mayo Clinic sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Banu Kola and Dr. Meghna Mansukani. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kola and Mansukani. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll take a short break. When we come back, my colleague, Dr. Dan Elliott, joins Tracy in a discussion about undescended testicles. UDT can be a worrisome but often correctable problem in growing boys. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dan Elliott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Now, new parents, like myself, a few years ago, you understand that, you know, there's ten toes, uh, ten fingers, two ears, two eyes. (laughs) But there's usually two testicles. There's a condition called undescended testicles, relatively common, occurring in 3% of newborn males. And this could cause a great amount of concern for parents. The term undescended testicles means that the testicle has not descended down to its normal position in the scrotum. Usually just one testicle is affected, but about 10% of the time, both testicles are undescended. Here to talk about UDT in children is Mayo Clinic pediatric urologist, Dr. Candice Granberg. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Granberg. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Now, this, of course, for uh, parents of boys and not girls, so all the girls can just just sit down. You're fine on this one. But how common is uh, UDT for baby boys? Well, as Dan said, 3% of all newborn boys will have a testicle that's not where it needs to be. But within the first few months of life, it might go down on its own. And by the time a boy turns one, only 1% of boys will have this problem. Well, where is that testicle? I mean, well, let's back up even farther. Mm-hmm. Why on earth are the testicles down the scrotum? Seems like it could be a better place. It's a little safer. <laughs> so why are they down there? And then where is it if it's not down there? Yeah. So testicles, when they're forming in the womb, actually start up near the kidneys. Mm. And as a baby is forming, they work their way down to the bottom of the belly, and they pop through a little tunnel and go into the scrotum. And the reason they want to be in the scrotum is because they don't want to be at the higher temperature where the intestines and everything else are sitting in the belly. They function better at a cooler temperature, and so that's why they need to sit in the scrotum outside of the body to perform better. Okay. I love how you said, so where is it? Because that that infers in my head that it's just kind of roaming around, like, oh, I don't want to go to the scrotum quite yet, but where is the undescended testicle? So the testicles anywhere along that tract of, did it start up near the kidney? Sometimes it's still up by the kidney. Sometimes it's just inside the belly. Sometimes it's in that tunnel 
working its way down to the scrotum. And sometimes it is outside the belly, but it's so tight it hasn't worked its way down to the bottom of the scrotum. And is there a typical reason-wise or a common cause for UDT? Again, there's there's not really a good explanation for why this happens. It's it's usually spontaneous, not usually inherited in families. It can happen. Um, some syndromes are associated with a testicle that doesn't go where it needs to be. So is the only reason to do something just purely for, say, cosmetics or concern? Because why not just let it stay where it is if it doesn't yeah. want to come down? So the testicles do two things. One is they make sperm so people can have babies. And the other is they make hormones so that you can go through puberty and have testosterone in your system for other reasons. And so the testicles, to do those things, need to be down in the scrotum to work. And so we bring them down into the scrotum where they need to be so that they can function, make hormones, and have babies. Is there any risk if you don't do anything besides that? Is there cancer risk, or should a parent be concerned otherwise? Yep, there is actually an increased risk of cancer in a testicle that's not down where it needs to be. And by putting it down where it needs to be, like with a surgery, it doesn't necessarily decrease the risk of cancer itself, but at least it's where a boy can feel it if it did have a problem. Ah, okay. It's easy to do when you have a baby boy and mm-hmm. you're changing the diaper a billion times a day, mm-hmm. but when they get to be a little bit bigger mm-hmm. and the potty training has taken place, then it's yeah. a little bit harder to mm-hmm. say, let's have a look here and see yeah. how you're progressing. So uh, what if the parents, you know, the child is three or two, mm-hmm. however, and there is a testicle. It has started to descend, but it doesn't look the same. It's mm-hmm. not even. Does there have to be symmetry yeah. for little boys' so, testicles? So to back up, when they were first born, the most important time to say, does my baby have two testicles, is when they're born. They're the skinniest they're ever going to be. They're tiny. They just lay there. They're relaxed. And you document, is there a testicle on each side? Do they ten have fingers, one? Ten fingers, ten toes. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Two testicles. <laughs> and then the pediatrician is going to see them for all of their well-baby visits at two weeks, two months, four months, six months. And every time, they should be checking and making sure the testicles are there. And then they should let us know if there's a problem. Because if the testicles don't make it where they need to go by the time they turn six months old, they haven't dropped on their own. They need to come and see a pediatric urologist. Okay, now I got a good question for you. Mm-hmm. Guys goes out in the cold, t- scroll them the testicles, they mm-hmm. pop up. Okay, yes. I've heard about that. Kind of yo yoing yes. back and forth. This is supposed yep. to be children, you know. Yes. Not <laughs> a little personal question. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> well, in Minnesota, this is a concern. So, what's the difference between mm-hmm. that and one that's not gone down there permanently? Yes, that's exactly relates to what Tracy just said. So, when boys get nervous, when they get cold, they tuck their testicles up, and it's a protective reflex that boys have. And that reflex becomes active when boys turn about one year old, and it's there until puberty. And so, that's why it's difficult to examine the toddler or the three year old when you say, gosh, I can't feel this testicle. Usually it's just what we call a retractile testis where it's retracting up because of this reflex and it goes right back down where it needs to go. Those type of testicles are not a problem. That's a normal reflex. Okay, good. Okay, so Mm -hmm. nothing to worry about there. Nothing to worry about. It's not a trick testicle type (laughs) thing. No, you're fine. You mentioned the corrective surgery. Mm -hmm. How often do you have to perform this? So about two-thirds of the time it'll drop on its own. And why does it do that? Well, in the first few months of age, boys have this surge of testosterone. We call it baby puberty where this surge of testosterone brings the testicle down where it needs to go. If it hasn't done it by that time, it's usually not going to. And so that's why by about six months of age, if they can't feel it at the pediatrician's office, they really should see a pediatric urologist because we do want to do a surgery to put it where it belongs before a baby turns one because sometime after that is when those cells that make babies and make hormones can become damaged. Well, let's say I'm a parent and I'm very concerned about having surgery. I don't Mm -hmm. want my baby to undergo surgery. Are there any pills we can take? 
need for this? There's no medication that's successful in making the testicle go down where it needs to go. A baby is not going to care one whit about mm-hmm. this because they're too little, but I can imagine. I don't mm-hmm. know who would be more freaked out, a mom mm-hmm. or a dad. Yep. And this would have to be something that really does bother parents. Mm-hmm. So how do you help? talk them down. Yeah, I do tell them that it is one of the most common surgeries that I do because again, 1% of all boys will need to have this surgery done. But by doing it early in life, we're preventing them from having these issues with fertility by putting it where it belongs. They can feel if there's a lump or a bump when they're doing their self exams as a teenager to make sure it's not cancer. And it's the safest thing to do. Um, And again, it is time sensitive. We want to do it before there's any damage to the testicle by having it sit up in the tummy if that's where it is. And let's say that that has not happened. Um, Mm -hmm. A five-year-old boy Mm -hmm. It's his first physical before he's going to start kindergarten Mm -hmm. and it's discovered. Then what happens? So they still come and see us and then we see what we can feel. And, you know, the the question I usually get from pediatricians is, should I get an ultrasound? Should I get an MRI? Should we go look for these testicles? And really the answer is no, because it doesn't change our management. I'm still going to have to go look for that testicle with the surgery if I can't feel it. And so we still do surgery in older kids because they do show up at various times of life for whatever reason, having it not addressed as a baby. And we still go do a surgery to find the testicle and put it where it belongs if it's there. And over the years, we've had uh, different doctors say, you know, maybe the yearly physical for an adult isn't such mm-hmm. a big and important mm-hmm. step, but this is explains why those well-child visits are so important, it doesn't is. it? It is, because honestly, there's times where they actually don't have another testicle on that side. And And so what happens sometime during development, something happened and the testicle just never formed correctly or it didn't form at all. And we still have to go and look for it because if there's a little piece of testicle that's sitting somewhere, you know, we want to take it out. If it's a testicle, we want to put it in the scrotum. And so it's it's important for us to have that talk with parents before a surgery so that if we find, nope, there was no testicle there to begin with, it's not a shock. But that does happen. It's a common surgery, usually mm-hmm. very easy to do. But what um, I'm just thinking, if you have a testicle that is not descended like it's supposed to mm-hmm. and the baby is six or nine months old, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you just because the other testicle is going to do what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you just remove that if they're if you're having trouble and then it tends to mm-hmm. p- possibly become a cancer at some point down the lifespan. So, you know, two testicles are better than one sure. in this situation um, because yes, it's easy for it me to say. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, no, that yeah. is absolutely true. Yes. That's mm-hmm. a very good yeah, point. from a function standpoint, yes, a man with one testicle has a, you know, infertility rate the same as men with two as far as having babies, um, you know, the cancer rate would be gone because you've taken the testicle out. But now you've got a boy who only has one testicle. And most boys want to be symmetric and have two. And so if you can put it down where it belongs, you do. If it's an older boy, let's say he's a teenager and he's already through puberty, and then we find his testicles way up in his tummy, we know that testicle's probably been damaged over time. It's smaller than the other testicle. We do just take it out. And in those situations, we can talk to a boy about a prosthesis. We do have prosthetic mm-hmm. testicles we can put in so that they can look like they have two testicles. And can one testicle make enough hormones to replace that other one? Yes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, if a father has had an undescended test, undescended mm-hmm. testicle, are his sons more likely to have that too? Yes, that that does happen. Where a dad had it happen, and then the brother, and then all of a sudden the brother of of the one that you're examining, and um, it is a slightly increased risk, um, but. You know, again, it's something that we see so commonly that that it's easily fixable if you find it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Dr. Granberg, for your insights into the diagnosis and treatment of UDT in little boys. Dr. Candace Granberg is a pediatric urologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.